Please open your Bibles to Luke 14, 25 through 35. The passage may be found in your pew Bibles on page 874. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, which is the translation that Pastor Wes Holland will be preaching from. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and he is not able to finish, all who see it began to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks him for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple." Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use, either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. May God bless to our understanding this reading from his holy word. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God, I do pray that you would open our, um, the eyes of our heart that we may uh, see um, you as you were revealed in your word. Lord, draw us to the Lord Jesus Christ um, again and again. We ask in his name. Amen. All right, what if I told you that in this sermon... I am going to try and talk you out of being a Christian. That might be surprising to you. If I did it, if I tried to do it, uh, you might call a congregational meeting and uh, try to get rid of me at the first possible moment. But it seems as if Jesus is doing this as he preached to the crowds in the passage that uh, was just read. Three times he told the crowd following him, You cannot be my disciple. So at the, verse, at the end of verse 26, he says, You cannot be my disciple. Verse 27 at the end, uh, You cannot be my disciple. And then again in verse 33, um, he, he cannot be my disciple. Why would Jesus say this? Well, as I read, um, or rather, as I read verse 25, I, here's, here's the picture I have in my mind's eye. Um, Jesus is traveling along maybe from one town to the next town. And as he's traveling, word spreads that, that Jesus is on the move. 
And so with each step he takes, the crowd keeps getting bigger and bigger, and they're following him. It's probably something of a, uh, of a festive uh, occasion. And um, notice in verse 25 the word turned. It gives the sense that he suddenly stopped in wherever he was going and turned to the crowd and without warning began preaching to them. So verse 25, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, you know, it's likely that um, in that great number of people who are following Jesus, very, very few of them actually knew the Lord and were trusting in him. There was great excitement, obviously. People were, a, were eager to see him perform a miracle. Others might have been following him because they thought he might start a movement to overthrow the Roman rulers that were oppressing them. But there were few in that crowd who were actually following him because they were concerned about their soul's eternal salvation. There were few that were were trusting in him as their savior. That's why Jesus so often in the Gospels makes statements like this in Matthew 7, 13 and 14, where he says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide And the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So Jesus, knowing that there are many in that crowd who are headed to destruction, He stopped in his tracks, he turned to that crowd, and he made a statement that was as likely disruptive to their souls um, as the statements he made in that infamous dinner party we've been looking at in the first part of Luke 14. So he said to them, verse 26, verse 27, and then verse 33, If anyone comes to me and does not, notice the word here, hate his own father and mother. I mean, this this is Father's Day. We have this in our text. If anyone does not come to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That's not enough. Verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And then again, verse 33, so therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus was not trying to gather a crowd to stoke his ego or to uh, have a big crowd to pass the plate and fill his wallet. Uh, He was concerned about their eternal salvation. And he knew that one must be born again before they can enter into the kingdom of God. And these people who are chasing him down the road Uh, seeking from him to see a miracle 
uh, if he performed a miracle, that's not going to change their hearts. They needed to be born again. So what Jesus is doing here, almost without warning, is he is forcing them into a decision as to whether they were really going to follow him as their Savior. It's as if Jesus, as he's walking along that dirt road, he stopped, he drew a line in that road and, and put himself on one side and put the crowd on the other side. And he, um, and he told them if they were not willing to hate their family, if they were not willing to hate even their own life, if they were not willing to renounce all that they had in order to see him as more valuable than anything they could possibly love, they cannot be his disciple. He challenged them to see him as so supremely valuable that they would swiftly leave all else behind in order that he might be his disciple. You know, that challenge remains today. Do you see Jesus so supremely valuable that you would leave all else behind to be his disciple? If you place conditions or limits on your willingness to follow Jesus, Jesus is saying you cannot be his disciple. course, I believe Jesus is speaking here using a bit of hyperbole as he is giving to do when he talks about uh, hating your family. But I don't believe he is talking in hyperbole when he says you cannot be my disciple if you put any conditions on your discipleship. What gives Jesus the right to speak like this? He is saying that he must have the sole and supreme place in your life. Who does he think he is? What audacity. Only God has the right to demand such ultimate loyalty from us. Who is Jesus? Jesus is God Almighty. He is God the Son. He is your creator. He is your king. By definition, therefore, he must have the sole and supreme place in your life, or you are living um, in insubordination to him. That's what he's saying here. And he is your God. He has the right to say it. It's stunning that he says it. But he says it, and it is true. Jesus is not quote the first commandment. But I think that's what he, he is preaching a mini-sermon based on Exodus 20, verse 3, and he's applying it to himself. What does the first commandment say? It says, you shall have no other gods before me. And Jesus is saying, you shall have nothing in your life that you value more than me. 
basically the same thing that we read in the first commandment. When Jesus uses the word hate in verse 26 to give the people, he's doing so to give the people no wiggle room as they were considering what was most important to them. It was a masterful use of hyperbole to make them wrestle with the importance of his call for them to follow him. Thomas Boston paraphrases verses, um, verse 26 when he said, and verse 27 when he says, No person can be a true disciple of Christ to whom Christ is not dearer than what is dearest to him in the world. You know, Jesus made this same point in Matthew 6, verse 24, when he said, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Jesus is saying that, you must, that everything you love must be in second place to him. And if need be, that you let go of all else. Love for Christ is the true disciple's um, ultimate loyalty. I remember uh, when I was in college, and one of the things that I really loved, if you can believe it, um, was my Iron Maiden uh, cassette tapes and ACDC and everything like that. And I just, I was listening to it, and it was not edifying to me, and I kept trying to not listen to it. I was probably a Christian six months, and I'm trying to figure out what, how how do I um, put this behind me when I have so little discipline? And so one night, I found a hammer went up in my dorm room, and I began smashing these cassette tapes, one after another after another. The RA, instead of knocking, he heard all this banging. He used his master key to bust in. What's going on here? I was embarrassed that I had all these these tapes all unraveled and smashed up. But it was something that was, it was vying for my heart at that time. And I realized, I've got to get rid of it. Now I think I could listen to it. it if, I, if I enjoyed it, I would, it wouldn't be a big deal because it wasn't, the, um, it, it wasn't king of my heart like it was when I was a brand new Christian. To love anything more than Christ is idolatry. Christ has first place in your heart or something else does. You don't have a neutral heart. You can't, like your car, put it in neutral position. Either Christ has first place or something else does. You will either be devoted to Christ or you will be devoted to whatever that other thing is that has first place in your life. Whatever you are most devoted to, uh, realigns all your other priorities to make sure that your first love is given your first attention. And when Christ is your first love, 
He's able to arrange all your priorities and put them in the right order. When you love Christ first, you are best able to love your spouse and your family. And since it's Father's Day, fathers, you are best able to love and care for your family, care for your children when when you have learned to love Christ supremely. Kent Hughes says that it is only when we put Christ in the supreme place in our heart that we can stop deifying ourselves and deifying others so that we can really uh, love others selflessly. In other words, really love people as we are called to love them. I want to try and illustrate uh, how important it is to have Christ as first in your heart. And I want to do so by talking about how you can know God's will for your life. If Christ is not first in your heart, then by definition, your choices will not be Christ-centered. And the choices, you may weigh your choices um, very carefully. They may be big, life-changing choices. What to do for a career, where to live, who to marry. And as your ma- or it might be small um, choice. It might seem inconsequential at the time. But um, you may even uh, do uh, weigh your, your choices so carefully that you do a cost-benefit analysis. But if Christ is not at the center of your goals and priorities, your carefully weighed decisions will lead you away from the decision that Christ would want you to make. Because by definition, you'd be following yourself, following something else. You might make more money following yourself. You might, make, um, you might live an easier life uh, making your decisions without considering Christ in your life. Or you may follow Christ and put him at the center and make more money or have an easier life or whatever. It's not, the outcome is not what's important. It's the way you go about making the choices. Is Christ at the center? Are his priorities at the center? If you're not thinking about Christ, you may willy-nilly decide to go in this career direction. And if you'd stop and thought about Christ, You may have become a missionary to Zimbabwe or wherever. And it may have been a hard life. But you would have followed Christ and glorified him as his disciple. It's important that we keep Christ at the center. If we are following ourselves and following only what we desire without uh, thinking about Christ... We are acting as idolaters, and Jesus says, you cannot be his disciple. Loving Christ supremely means that we walk in the same path that our Lord walked. What was his path that he walked? Our our Lord walked in the way of the cross while he was here on earth. He didn't live for himself. 
Rather, he lived for the glory and renown of, of his heavenly Father. He lived here on earth with the purpose of dying on the cross and to follow him by definition, following him. We will walk as he did. Verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You know, we often hear people um, speak of bearing crosses as they are passively enduring some kind of suffering. You know, it's my cross to bear that I have to drive a car that constantly is breaking down. It's my cross to bear that I have this daily chronic illness. Jesus is saying here that we must actively die to ourselves. We're not just passively bearing some kind of suffering. He is saying we must actively live for him. We must actively die to ourselves daily. Uh, Again, Kent Hughes says, Discipleship is a series of deaths, perpetual dying. Disciples follow Christ on a path of self-denial. As a Christian, daily you are having to say no to the world. As a Christian, you are having to say no to your sinful appetites. As a Christian, you are having to say no to what your friends or your neighbors might be doing. As a Christian, you are following a different path. It is a path that is continually saying no to yourself in order that you may say yes to your Creator and your King. You know, this is not the Christianity of the health and wealth uh, churches. And frankly, it's not what's being preached in many churches. Uh, to fill the church roles is very tempting to relax the claims of Christ upon us. Because Christ requires taking up your cross. Jesus orders the crowd to count the cost. Verses 20, 28 through 32. He gives two little parables. They're related, they're similar, but they're a little different. So beginning with verse 28. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who, begin, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Um, When I went to Uganda the first time, this was in 1990, and um, Idi Amin had been out of power for over a decade, but they had still had the Civil War. Idi Amin was going to make Kampala, the capital of Uganda, into this great city, the biggest, greatest city in Africa. And so he started building these skyscrapers. And then he ran out of money. And so uh, you had all over Uganda, all over Kampala, these cranes uh, that were set up and they had rusted. And ironically, what you had on top of the cranes were these great birds, Ugandan cranes on top of the cranes. And they started calling them uh, Idi Amin's cranes. 
because they were sitting on top of the cranes. And they mocked him. And one of the, my taxi driver almost drove off the road. He was laughing so hard as he was mocking Idi Amin for uh, the, the Ugandan cranes. Um, because following Christ um, requires taking up your cost. Uh, taking up your cross, Jesus, he's not selling a bill of goods here. He's not trying to say, well, things will be wonderful here in this life. No, he says every day you're going to be taking up your cross. Your life will be self-denial. Your life will be uh, swimming upstream. And so he says, count the cost. Think carefully about your commitment that you are making to him. Don't make it easily. You know, we have these revival meetings um, where people are pressured to make a decision real quick. And Jesus says, no, think about it carefully. Consider it. See if you were really willing to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, are you willing to cut the cords of love for the world to be his follower? Are you willing to cut the cords of love for yourself in order that you might be tied to the Lord Jesus Christ? Repenting of sins is unpleasant. Confessing that you are such a sinner that you need a Savior is unpleasant. Counting others as more important to you is unnatural. Jesus says, count the cost to see if you're really willing to be his disciple. To make sure you understand the cost associated with following him, Jesus said in verse 33, So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Is there something in your life that you are saying to Jesus off limits? I am not giving that to you, Jesus. Jesus says, if you're unwilling to renounce all that you have, you cannot be his disciple. And the reason why this is so important is because Jesus is recruiting followers through his preaching of the gospel who will indeed follow him, who will reflect him as they live in the world. So he says in, in uh, verses 34 and 35, Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears, let him hear. If we have any chemical engineers, you're probably saying, sodium chloride is sodium chloride. How can it not be sodium chloride? Well, what happened was they would go get the salt from the Dead Sea and uh, from the shore of the ocean. The, the water was not clean. There was a lot of dirt and sediment in with it. And uh, as, as it would be piled together, other dirt would be piled with it. And the salt would indeed lose its saltiness, and it would be good for nothing. 
And Jesus is saying he wants disciples that are salty. Remember what he says over in Matthew chapter 5? I think it's verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. The Lord Jesus wants you to be salty when you are with your neighbors. He wants you to be salty when you are with your friends. He wants you to be salty when you're out in the stores, out and about in the community. He wants you to reflect his glory and his grace in your life. And if you're too busy being worldly, if you're too busy following your own desires and dictates, how are you being useful to anybody in the world that needs to see the Lord Jesus Christ? Or what if you are made a good start with Christ and you got waylaid and you're still a believer, but you're so distracted that you're, you're following Christ is... is um, is barely being able to be seen by you, much less by others. Jesus wants you to be salty. I want to conclude by asking, why would the people that are following Jesus, when he turns around and starts um, drawing this line in the sand, you cannot be my disciple unless you are willing to hate your father, mother, sister, brother, uh, you cannot be my disciple unless you take up your cross. You cannot be my disciple uh, unless you renounce all that you have. Why would they, why would that be persuasive to them? Why would that not just drive everyone away? Well, the messenger was the Lord Jesus Christ. God the Son was standing there in their midst. He was absolutely unique, sinless. His teaching had unique authority. He was able to perform miracles. He was able to be compassionate toward those who were being compassionate. He was able to fearlessly call out hypocrites. The, the Pharisees who were lording uh, the religion over the people. His whole way of life, as he's, sitting, as he's standing there preaching to them, preached loudly. And there was something attractive simply in his person, not, all, uh, not only in his words. And so there was an attraction there. And Jesus is saying, cross that line, become my disciple, but don't do so easily. Consider the cost, because there is a great cost. But you know what? There's also great reward. The Apostle Paul says, the reward we have in Christ makes everything else pale in comparison. The, the sorrows, the sufferings, the pains, all of that will be gone and be replaced with glory. Those people had the person of the Lord Jesus in front of them. What we have is the Lord Jesus, the risen Savior. We know 
that he died on the cross for our sins. We know that he suffered the wrath of God in our place. We know that he was raised in glory. We know that he is seated at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us. We know that he so loved us that he embraced the cross with all its shame. We know that he's coming back for us. We know that he so loved his church that he laid down his life for it. Oh, if you are here this morning and do not know the Lord Jesus, look to him, look to his glory, look to his grace, look to his love for you. And if you've not crossed that line to be his disciple, cross it today. But consider the cost, because there will be cost. But don't let anything stop you from being a follower of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, you are a good Savior, great beyond our ability to grasp. Lord, as a preacher of the gospel, trying to preach Jesus Christ, I've run out of words to adequately express his glory. And God, I pray that by your Spirit, you would use your word in your people's hearts. Draw everyone here, Lord, to the Lord Jesus. Lord, don't let anyone leave here today with an idolatrous heart, with a heart that is insubordinate to the God of gods and the Lord of lords, with a heart that is unredeemed with the heart that will be damned for all eternity. Lord, I pray that you would draw everyone, and even believers who have been long believers, draw us again, Lord, continually to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because, Lord, we are called to take up our cross daily. We need our Lord Jesus Christ daily. We need our heart to be stirred and renewed daily. Work in us by your Spirit, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.